Sonia created the Love the Word Bible Study Method just for you, based on Mary's personal practice and formulated for your personality and temperament. Get your Love the Word meditations every Monday morning by signing up at BibleStudyEvangelista.com. Now, here's Sonia. If you like having Bible study in your pocket and you have an iPhone or iPad, why not leave a review? Search Bible Study Evangelista in iTunes and tell everyone how you're loving and lifting all you've been given. Here's Sonia. Sacred Healing 1230, the podcast. I'm Sonia Corbett, your Catholic Evangelista. We're in our seventh episode of The Little Way, Healing the Inner Child. And last week, we looked extensively on fraternal correction and how to rescue the lost sheep and how to keep the inner child of the other person in mind when we're doing so. So now what I'd like to do is round that out and circle back to the inner child in us and take a look at a couple of principles that we need to keep in mind as we are turning back to the inner child, the parts of us that need to be rescued within ourselves. But before I do that, it is long overdue that I shout out my newest friends of the show. And so the list is long, but super important to me. And so for Pat L, Catherine K, Deb F, Kathleen F, Christy O, Nancy K, Joella M, Rodney J, Laura E, Rob S, Renee K, Rachel M, Sylvia R, Kathy K, Karen A S, Kim L, Donna H, Cynthia R, Cynthia C, Katie P, Joan R, Jennifer S, Lydia M, Juana N, Cheryl B, extra thank you, Carl O, Jalen M, Monica M, Rose G, Melanie D, Veronica W, Melinda M, Lauren G, Tessa W, Lindsay B, Ann C, Carol S, Christina C, Vicki G, Anita C, Kristen L, Emily P, Ann B, Kevin G. Thank you for being friends of the show. Thank you for supporting me and every evangelistic effort that I undertake. You are a huge part of every single evangelistic effort that I undertake, and it is no exaggeration. So thank you so much for being a friend. So we spoke about fraternal correction, which is something none of us likes, but everyone has a duty to undertake. And so Jesus gives us good guidelines and good boundaries for how to do that. And we're turning back now to the inner child in each of us. We looked at the fact that we must be converted and become as little children. And that is the basis for the turning back and looking back to the inner child to rescue the lost sheep of the parts of us that have been left behind and who still operate under the surface or behind the scenes in in. Uh, what's the word in provoking, (laughs) we could say, because when our inner child is in distress and isn't receiving the love and attention that he or she needs, that's when he or she acts out and we fall into habits of sin. We fall into that predominant fault, self-medication. We have physical symptoms, all of that. Those are all symptoms of an inner child who needs our attention and our love And in essence, what we're doing is turning back to reparent, to provide and to protect in the ways that 
our inner child was not provided for and protected at the time. And so the inner child develops all kinds of coping mechanisms. We've spoken about those at length. I want to address a sort of complementary set of guidelines in the Beatitudes for how to correct ourselves, but also the Christian brother or sister, and that's located in the Beatitudes. The first is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so we see there that humility is the foundation of holiness. It's the highest virtue, and so it has to come first, just like the, the first commandment. So we're working on humility first. Number two, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In the case of the inner child, we're mourning what the what our inner child did not receive from either parents or other authority figures. Perhaps there was trauma, as in little Therese of Lisieux, mourning the lack and the deficits of love that we all experience as children, mourning the neglect and the sadness that comes with that as we're turning back and being converted again, both for ourselves and for those around us who are Christian brothers and sisters. When we see them astray or we see them lost, it causes us, or it should, to mourn for them. We want them to be brought back into the flock of Christ, the flock of the church, the flock of communion with all of us. And so mourning is a sub-facet of humility, Lamenting, wailing, withering are other translations of the word for mourn, because if you're not humble, you can't wither in a holy way. The withering then becomes self-hatred or self-loathing, a sin, and it's actually a backward pride. When we're caught up in self-loathing or despising the little one in some way, the self or the other person, we have fallen into the sin of pride. So we have to realize in humility that we're weak and we're helpless without Christ. That's the basis of that humility. It's the basis of that mourning. So we're not allowing ourselves to be victims and we're not allowing other people to be victims. We're all responsible for our actions and our behaviors. But as we acknowledge that, we're also keeping in mind that we are children. (laughs) And so we're helpless and weak. And that leads to number three, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is not weakness. It is power under control. You're a humble, withering, sinful individual, but you can't be helpless. Humbly craft your sword, but don't use it. Meekness, remember, the picture behind that word is a sheathed sword. The sword is sharp. The sword is powerful. It cuts in both directions. So we're not helpless, but we don't use the sword. We have humbly crafted it, but we're not using it until and unless we know for sure that we're supposed to. And that's where that discernment process comes in. And that's also where the guidelines in Matthew 18 come in, in correcting one another and in correcting even ourselves. Number four, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Because when you see someone lost, someone astray, maybe it's you and your inner child, maybe it's someone else, a a Christian brother or sister in your family or in your parish, and you hunger for that righteousness, you hunger for it to be set right, you hunger for yourself to be set right on the inside, you will be satisfied if you're humble and meek, because now you're going to seek ways to utilize that humble meekness and that that sword that is sheathed, you're going to 
seek ways to use that sword for God and to ask him for ways to dish out that virtue and righteousness as a soldier of God in meekness and gentleness, keeping in mind that the other person is the child of God and that you are as well. And so all of those guidelines that Jesus gave us in Matthew 18 for fraternal correction apply here. We are hungering and thirsting after righteousness, and we will be satisfied so long as we keep the meekness and the mourning and the humility in mind. And so, number five, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. We're keeping that inner child in ourselves and in them in mind. We're justly merciful as we are contemplating the ways that God has pointed out for us to correct the brother or sister or even ourselves. How do we go about rectifying the situation with humility, with a hunger and thirst for righteousness, for meekness, and also even in mourning for the need to correct it or to rectify it? And that leads to number six, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Humility, realizing that you're nothing without God, having a sword and dishing out righteousness and justice justly and mercifully leads to the development of a pure heart, both for you and the other person. And that leads to number seven, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called children of God. We've been talking about children here. All of these things in the proper order culminate into your being an agent of peace and cultivating peace in the church, in your family, in the community, in the world, and in yourself. Number eight, blessed are those who suffer persecution for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. People will hate you for being an agent of peace. Take it gladly and humbly and inherit the kingdom made for you upon death if it doesn't work out here on earth. But either way, you can see how the Beatitudes are listed in order of how you practice them and also in order of development in the same sort of way that the guidelines in Matthew 18 are. So let's bring it down more specifically. How does this apply to the inner child in me? Well, first of all, we have to cultivate that poverty in spirit. Being poor in spirit is recognizing and knowing that you're little. You're a child. And so you're weak and you're helpless without Christ. That's the basis of humility and it's the basis of our mourning. I'm weak. Lord, I need your help. Help me. I'm going to be meek with myself. I am, while I'm hungering and thirsting after righteousness, I'm going to be gentle. I'm a withering, humble, sinful individual, but I'm not helpless. I'm going to do what I need to do in you. I'm going to get out my sword and I'm thirsting after righteousness. I'm going to be merciful with myself without the self-loathing, without the self-hatred, recognizing I'm just weak. I'm just a child. I'm going to get up and I'm going to move forward. Moving forward helps purify my heart and it be it makes me a peacemaker because the interior, the inner child is healed little by little. And as I become more at peace on the inside, I communicate that peace on the outside. And then, because I am at peace and other people don't understand the changes I'm making with new boundaries, they don't always accept or understand what I'm doing, and then they persecute me or you.
You are listening to the Sacred Healing 1230 Podcast, because love heals. Aren't you tired of all the ugliness on social media? You need a faith community that nurtures you and helps you heal. Visit BibleStudyEvangelista.com and click Community on the menu, or scroll down to the radio notes and click the link to the Sacred Healing 1230 Community. You'll find monthly coaching calls for one-on-one consultation and masterclass participants, live healing prayer streams, a monthly Bible study, prayer intentions and intercessions, love the word takeaways from the daily readings, and poignant shares of our victories and struggles. We're waiting for you. Are you coming? Did you know you can get Bible Study Evangelista radio notes and podcasts delivered to your inbox every Monday morning? Redeem your Mondays. Join thousands of your fellow listeners by subscribing at BibleStudyEvangelista.com. Now, here's Sonia. I'm writing a new book right now, and I've been pondering the story of Adam and Eve and how it applies to this inner child idea. And of course, if you're listening to this series, then you're all in on healing the inner child. But many, many people think this is totally hokey. And maybe you're one of those. Maybe you're just listening because you've been with me for a long time. But I want to show you why this is so necessary. I've been pondering in writing the new book that Adam and Eve, think about the Garden of Eden, and the temptation was that they would have been like God if they simply eat the apple. Now, of course, these are all pictures, right? Symbols. The apple was probably not an actual apple, but they, the temptation was that they were supposed to be like God if they ate the apple. But what I've been pondering and what has really blown my mind about that is that they could have had the knowledge of good and evil without all of that suffering, without any suffering, if they had simply looked at, acknowledged, and paid attention to the presence of the snake in the garden with them and put the snake in its proper place rather than allowing their attention to be distracted away from the snake and onto the apple. And if you'll look at your own life, if you'll look at the world around you, this is exactly the same technique that the enemy uses all the time. The snake is already present. The snake is a symbol of suffering and pain and evil and chaos. And the temptation is always to look at something else besides the pain and suffering and chaos and trouble. And so we distract ourselves with all kinds of things. We get involved in sin habits. We self-medicate. We look at the person through whom the pop quiz came or through who, whom the hurt came rather than actually looking at the pain itself. That's the distraction. That's the temptation of the evil one. He doesn't want us looking at the, the actual thing, the inner child, the pain, the wound, the hurt, the offense. He wants us blaming other people. He wants us blaming ourselves. He wants us sucked into all kinds of self-medicating slavery habits. 
he wants us to be experiencing all sorts of physical symptoms, disease and sickness and pain and, and all kinds of ugly, ugly stuff. He wants us focused on that. When if we simply would look at the actual hurt, the suffering, the pain, the chaos, the trouble, if we would pay attention to that, the dark thing, the thing that we don't want to look at, if we would simply pay attention to that and put it in its proper place and stop ignoring it and stop pushing it away and stop thinking I'll get to it at some point or or else I don't ever want to get to that. I don't ever want to look at that. If you keep keep pushing it away, all you're do, doing is distracting yourself from the snake in the garden with you. Look at the garden as sort of being your inner life or your life, period. And Adam being the masculine part of yourself and Eve being the feminine part of yourself and the snake being the offense or the pain. And the the temptation is always to focus on something else. We don't want to look at the evil that's in ourselves that's been sort of instigated by the wounds that we receive from other people and the wounds that we perpetuate through our sin. We don't want to look at the evil in ourselves. It is a shock to us when we are truly Christ followers, when we are truly Catholics, when we're truly trying to live a good Christian life, the evil within ourselves, sometimes called the shadow, is very hard to look at. It's hard to see. It's hard to admit. And honestly, psychologically, for a long, long time, we may do really well and then boom, get sideswiped by a huge pop quiz and find ourselves in a mess that pulls up all kinds of darkness in us that we don't want to look at. And yet that is the temptation. If we'll look directly at the evil within ourselves and ask God how to order it, how to put it in its proper place, rather than allowing our attention to be distracted away from that evil into us or within us and onto the apple, then we can avoid the suffering that is inherent in those distractions. If we'll just see and properly place and submit the darkness in ourselves to God in the garden of our heart, acknowledging the masculine part of ourselves that is strong and strategic and logical on the good side. On the bad side, that masculine part can be too forceful, too angry, too strong. And then the female part of us is just going with the flow, super emotional. You know, that's the the negative side, maybe, too distracted. The good side of the feminine part of us is that spiritual motherhood. And each of us has both of those in us psychologically. And so if, if we can, if we can see the darkness in us and acknowledge its presence in humility, in meekness, in mourning, in all of the things and the ways that the Beatitudes and Matthew 18 show us, if we can do that, it loses all its power and it is properly ordered when we submit it to God. Jacob is a perfect example of this. Jacob had pop quiz after pop quiz after pop quiz in his woundedness. He was born a cheater. He was named deceiver. Now, this is a highly stylized literary tactic, right? But it's it's true of each of us. And that's why 
these stories in the Bible, of course, they involved actual people, but the the literary techniques are meant to show us in symbolic and overarching ways how each of us is each of those people, right? We're all Adam and Eve. We're all, we all have serpents in within us. We're all Jacob. We're born with concupiscence that causes us to be deceitful with ourselves and with other people. We lie, we hide, we prevaricate, we try to usurp other people. And Jacob, he experienced pop quiz after pop quiz in that deceit. He deceived his blind father. And when the situation at home, because of that deceit, grew too terrible for the family to deal with, of course, they're distracting themselves, right, by just trying to put Jacob out. Jacob leaves the family and he goes to an uncle, Uncle Laban, and Laban deceives Jacob in trying to secure for himself a wife. Laban lies to him, makes him work for seven years, six years or seven years for Rachel, whom he loved. And then he sent Leah, the older sister, into him at the the wedding to consummate the marriage. And in a way, Laban sort of took advantage of this blindness of Jacob. Why was he blind? Could he not see that this was not Rachel, but it was Leah? Well, remember that weddings in the Old Testament involved the bride coming to the groom in darkness and she's heavily veiled. And it makes a sort of sense that Jacob wouldn't have known that it was Leah rather than Rachel. And so he's deceived. He's deceived in blindness. So it's a repeat in a way of the same thing he did to his father. And then he works another set of years to, we'll say, buy the woman he actually loved, Rachel. Now he's got two wives. Now they're competing in the similar way that he and his brother Esau competed for the blessing and the love of their father. Now Rachel and Leah are competing for the blessing of their father, God, through childbearing, but also Jacob. They're competing for his love in this childbearing way. So that's a repeat. And then Jacob strikes a deal with his uncle Laban or Laban and he is going to sort of take care. He's he's performing some husbandry service services for his uncle. He's going to take care of the sheep. He's going to breed them. And they have this sort of contract with one another that Jacob will take all of the inferior sheep and Laban will keep all of the superior sheep. And Jacob is going to oversee all of that. And what Jacob does is he he sort of shows his trust in God's selection of him, both at birth in this prophecy that God gave his mother, and then also at the dream that he had at Bethel, the Jacob's latter dream, God affirmed the promises that he had made to Isaac regarding Jacob and his sons and all of that, the, the promises that, that Jacob usurped from Esau as the older brother. And of course, we can see through the story that that was actually providential, but Jacob then, he sort of demonstrates his trust in those promises in a backward sort of deceitful way with his uncle because he, he breeds the sheep in a way that he ends up with the better flock because, <laughs> well, it's a long story and I don't have time to actually go through it all. But again, we see that Jacob, although there is a bit of faith, it's mixed also with deceit again. 
You are listening to the Sacred Healing 1230 Podcast, because love heals. Losing it more often or lost yourself entirely? Binging on food, alcohol, or your phone? Feeling exhausted, anxious, angry, scared? You've done all the novenas, all the consecrations, adoration, daily mass, Bible study, therapy, and deliverance prayers. Why has none of it given you permanent relief? Does God not care? He does care. But you can't feel it because you need to be cherished. You need to be healed. In Sacred Healing 1230, I teach you how to live authentically from the holistic love of God and the power of Mark 1230. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. I teach you how to be cherished. I teach you how to guard your peace. I teach you how to love authentically. I teach you how to heal deeply. I teach you how to feel better. Because you can only love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength if they are healing and whole in Him. The love you were made for is only a mouse click away. Go to BibleStudyEvangelista.com to stop the emotional vomit and start experiencing the miracle of living authentically from the healing love of God in your heart, soul, mind, and body. Jacob has actually received the blessing from his father, the one that was prophesied from God, and it was confirmed in the dream of Jacob's ladder, and yet he is busy trying to force this prosperity and the promises to fulfillment through his deceit, first of his father, then of his brother, and then of his uncle. And so we can see this glaring shadow or fault or predominant fault or sin, darkness in Jacob. We can all see it very clearly. And yet we read that story or we hear it and we don't think about ourselves. Where is the darkness in me? And what would happen Could I have decent relationships and not be controlled by this desperate inner child that's making me deceitful or making me sin in repetitive ways? What if I were to simply look at it and submit it to God? And that's exactly what happens. Jacob turns back. He turns back to his brother Esau and he reaches out to his brother who previously was trying to kill him. And so Jacob went on the run. He runs from his uncle's house too, because his uncle has seen that Jacob is more prosperous than he is. And so there's been some deceit, both on his uncle's part, but also on Jacob's part. And so they can't live together anymore. And so again, he's he's having to leave. He's had to, having to go on the run. He's on the run from the truth of, it, of himself. And while he's on the run... He looks back to Esau. Now, I don't know if that is a mark of repentance or not. I'm not sure that it is, although I think it's the beginning of it. Because what happens next is that Jacob sends word to his brother he wants to meet. He is preparing for this meeting. And he has an experience of God by the river before this meeting with his brother. And in this confrontation with God, he's wrestling with this stranger and the stranger asks Jacob his name. And what he's really doing here is asking Jacob to confess the darkness in himself. 
because his name is Deceiver. And they wrestle all night long. So I suspect that there was a measure of, or at least a a thought of some sort of repentance where Esau was concerned, because the very next thing that happens is a confrontation with God through an angel in which Jacob wrestles all night with this angel. And it is, it's basically this sort of wrestling over who is Jacob? Is he the deceiver or is he not? I love this story. It's so beautiful because the angel proves to him that he could have won at any time by putting his thigh out of joint. But when Jacob confesses his name to the angel of God, that's when the angel blesses him and he changes his name from Jacob the deceiver to Israel, he who wrestles with God. And so we see in this dramatic story, the same principle that we we see in Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, only in that story, we see the consequences of not seeing the shadow, not, not acknowledging the evil in ourselves. It causes all kinds of messes. And then again, we see it in Jacob in the same sort of way, only we see what happens when you do finally see and acknowledge and confess and order the snake in us. And Jacob does that and he receives the blessing. And he goes on to end up being one of the the patriarchs. He is the the father of the 12 tribes. And so the fulfillment of the prophecy that God gave his mother, Rebecca, in the womb and the blessing, the unique blessing of his father, which was the inheritance of the oldest son usurped from Esau by Jacob deceitfully, all of that actually comes to fulfillment without Jacob having to do anything at all except be a man of integrity. And so we see there that if we too will turn back to the moment or moments in which we saw the darkness in ourselves, perhaps we sinned or perhaps we see the darkness that someone else imposed on us. Either way, we don't want to look at it. We'd rather have the apple. We'd rather distract ourselves. We'd rather pretend it's not there and go along our merry way. But when we do that, we perpetuate the darkness. So we have to turn back, as Jesus said in Matthew 18, we have to turn back and be converted as little children. We have to radically detach from anything that causes us to sin. And sometimes that's a part of ourselves. And we have to order that darkness in him. How do we do that? Well, first by trying to rescue that part of ourselves, that lost sheep, by directly confronting the darkness or the offense in ourselves in the same way that we would with a sinning brother or sister in Christ. We do that directly within ourselves. We do that with maybe other people for accountability. Perhaps we we prevail on all of the angels and saints. Perhaps we avail ourselves of the whole church through the sacraments. And we should be doing all of those, to be perfectly honest. But when Jesus is talking about, tell him his fault between you and him alone, confront the evil, confront the darkness within yourself directly. And then if you need help, get one or two other people for accountability, 
spiritual direction, consultation, contact me if you need help. And then, of course, avail yourselves of the whole church, meaning the angels and saints, your guardian angel, the sacraments of the church, a priest, something, all of those, right? We do those exactly the way God through Christ in Matthew 18 outlines for us. And then the next step is forgiveness. This is such a misunderstood topic, and I have taught on it many, many times, but we're going to spend a little time on it again today because it's so very important. We're not talking about toxic forgiveness that makes you a doormat, that makes you overlook all of the ugly things that other people do to you. Some of you are just now seeing this in yourselves. You're seeing that people have some some bizarre idea that they can treat you however they want to and that you're supposed to simply take it. And how dare you try to put a boundary in place? How dare you try to defend yourself in or with a boundary or even correct them when you're accused wrongly or when they mistreat you or when they exceed the boundaries that you've put in place? How dare you, right? And so you see that in yourself and now you're trying to figure out, okay, what do I do about this? Well, I'll tell you what you don't do. You don't forgive in a way, and I say that in air quotes, in a way that just lets them trample you and continue to do so because that makes you complicit in their sin. So we have to understand what forgiveness is. As I've said, I have taught about this so many times through the anxiety series and in other places, but we have to look at what Jesus teaches about forgiveness in Matthew 18 so that we can see what it's not, so that we can see what it really is, because true forgiveness will lead us to authentic love, both for ourselves in charity, but also for them. Because remember, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And we're we're talking about this inner child because if we can't love ourselves properly and authentically, we will never love our neighbors properly or authentically. Because we love our neighbor out of how we see ourselves and the things that we project onto them that are in ourselves that we don't want to see and we don't want to acknowledge and we don't want to admit. So it's very important that we follow these steps that Jesus lays out for us. Radical detachment, turning back to the lost sheep, the inner child, confronting the darkness, the sin, the fault within us, the evil, and then forgiving ourselves and forgiving other people. But we have to know how to do it properly. We can't just pretend that that everything's fine. That is not actual forgiveness. So what is forgiveness? Well, Jesus teaches us through this parable. He tells a parable of the unforgiving servant. And this servant owes a debt that he could never pay in many lifetimes. It's like a billion dollars in in today's money. There's no way he could ever pay it back. And yet he claims that he will pay it back if the master will simply have patience with him. And the master knows better, but he's moved with compassion, the parable says, and he released him and forgave him the debt. And that servant turns and finds one of his fellow servants, a fellow brother or sister in Christ that owes him very little, the equivalent of about $100, and he demands to be repaid. Woe to him and woe to us.
You are listening to the Sacred Healing 1230 Podcast, because love heals. If you love having Bible study in your pocket, you can become a friend of the show. Click on the yellow friend of the show button on BibleStudyEvangelista.com and become a supporter of any amount and any frequency. Now, here's Sonia. Remember that this entire parable on forgiveness is prefaced by this conversation that the disciples are having over who is the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus places a child in the midst of that discussion, and he says, this one is the greatest. And so we get all this instruction on how to deal with faults and sins and darkness and and, and evil in the midst of both ourselves and in the church. And then he starts to talk about forgiveness. We, he doesn't even talk about forgiveness until after all of this other stuff has been done. Why? Because we still haven't seen clearly what and how to forgive if we haven't also done the other steps first. And so what we see here is Peter comes to Jesus and he asks him, how many times do I have to forgive? Seven? And Peter thinks he is being very generous because the number seven in the scriptures is the number of covenant. It's the number of divine completeness. And Jesus says, no, not seven, 70 times seven. And so he multiplies the number of covenant, the number of divinity, the number of completeness by the number 10 and another seven. So he's sort of, it's, it's an exponential sort of number. But secondly, he adds this idea of the law to it because 10 is the number of law. Think the 10 commandments, the 10 plagues. There is law and there's judgment here. So what Jesus is saying is that the divine law of forgiveness requires that we forgive as a matter of covenant, of New Testament covenant. Until it's divinely complete. It's a matter of law. It's a, that's why Jesus says, if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. It's a matter of the law. It is an absolute. We must forgive, but we got to know what it is, right? We can't withhold our forgiveness, either of ourselves and our inner child or of those who offend us, whether they're in the church or outside the church. Either way, we must forgive, period. So what is forgiveness? Well, through the story... What we see is that it's simply the release of a debt. The The servant owed the master and the servant owed a fellow servant or the fellow servant owed the servant a debt. We're talking about a debt here. So what does the offender owe you? What does the offender owe you? Maybe it's simply an apology. Maybe it is an admission of the wrong. Maybe it is restoration. Maybe it's reconciliation. Maybe it's relationship. Maybe they owe you them going first, them approaching you, them reaching out to you. Perhaps they do. But Jesus was clear that if we have a, an offense that we're holding against a, a brother or sister in Christ, that we go to them. We don't expect them to come to us. And elsewhere, he says, if you, if you come to Mass, if you go to the altar and you remember an offense that you have against your brother or that he has against you, go and settle that first. Do this process in Matthew 18 first and then come back. And then you can offer your sacrifice or you can come to the, the, the altar. And so he's, he's telling us what forgiveness is and what it isn't. He doesn't say a single word 
about emotions and how you feel. And, and if I feel this way, then I will forgive. Or if I feel forgiving, he doesn't say anything about emotions. He doesn't say anything about the offense being okay. He doesn't say forget it. He doesn't say get over it because you can't get over a wound. It has to be healed. He doesn't say that you refuse to be angry or that you pretend not to be angry or even that you're not angry. He doesn't say that you should allow them to sin against you. He has already said that we need boundaries in the previous part of the discussion. He doesn't say you're not going to remember it again. He doesn't say that you have to reconcile. He doesn't say you have to have a relationship. He doesn't say any of that. All he says is that forgiveness is the release of a debt. And what that means in its practical terms is the offender doesn't owe you anything. They don't owe you. And this is exactly what the church fathers that I read last week say. Chrysostom says, accuse him nor scold him nor demand that he fix it. He says, don't do any of those things. Just tell him the fault. That's it. Just remind him of the sin and tell him what you've suffered at his hands. Tell him the fault. But we're not accusing. We're not scolding. We're not demanding he fix it or demanding that he apologize. We're releasing that person from the debt completely. They don't owe you anything. If you truly forgive, you no longer have any expectation of an apology, of a rectification, of reconciliation, of relationship, Nothing. Because you have already put your boundaries in place and they can no longer hurt you because you're responsible for that part. What they do from that point forward after you have released them from the debt is up to them and God. All we are required to do is release them from the debt. And why? Because we have been released from an an eternal debt that we could never pay. And in fact, Jesus in telling the story, he says that that eternal debt is such that not only is the servant sold into slavery, but also his wife and his children and all that he had. So the debt that we owe God involves not only ourselves, but everyone involved with us and all of our possessions. And so God has released us from the debt that we owe him. And so we owe him then the debt of forgiveness for our brothers and sisters, no matter who they are, whether they're Christian or not, we must release them from the debt after we have put good boundaries in place for ourselves and those that we are bound by duty and vocation to protect, meaning our children, our marriage, our home, those kinds of things. They're not mutually exclusive. We can forgive with boundaries. And in fact, that's exactly what, what Jesus is teaching here in Matthew 18. And he's, he goes on to say in the parable, after the wicked servant has not forgiven the fellow servant, the other servants were grieved, it says, and they came and told their master all that had been done. And the master, after he had called him, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. And so here we see this principle that unforgiveness is demonic torture. So God calls us to this forgiveness because he knows that it is an evil. It's a darkness. It's a shadow within us. And this is true of both forgiveness of other people and forgiveness of ourselves. Because what I have found in consultations with over 175 people at this point is that forgiving ourselves is the hardest part. We're, we're fine in charity to forgive everybody else because Jesus says to love your neighbor. 
But when it comes to the neighbor within us, we are ugly, 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 full of self-loathing, full of self-hatred. And that is nothing but pride in a backward way. It's Pharisaism. It's putting yourself above God. I know God forgives me, but I will never forgive me. You just might as well say to yourself and, and see that snake in your garden and say, I'm an idolater. I am an idolater because I will not release myself from that debt. That is the opposite of what those Beatitudes say about humility and meekness and mourning and hungering and thirsting after righteousness and being pure in heart and being peacemakers. If we can't even be at peace in ourselves because we're holding something over our own head and we're submitting to the demonic torture of unforgiveness, how in the world do you think that you're ever going to be a peacemaker in the world, that you're ever going to be pure in heart in the world, that you're ever going to be merciful in the world or meek. There is no way that you can possibly do to your neighbor what you are unwilling to do to yourself. And so I'm calling you out if this is you and you labor under depression because that's anger turned inward. If you labor under self-loathing, self-hatred, unforgiveness for yourself, I am asking you, I am pleading with you, get thee to confession. Confront it in yourself directly. Confront it directly. Get help with the, the reasons behind that condemnation and that judgment against yourself. Book a consultation with me. Go to the church and receive the sacrament. Confession helps us with those particular sins and gives us the grace to overcome them. And then the sacrament of the Eucharist, it nurtures the charity within us. It nurtures it for ourselves and for our neighbor. And I, I just have to say, again, if you cannot love the neighbor within you, you are never going to love the neighbor without. And you're never going to be able to love God and receive that love from him that you need to heal completely because you can't even receive it within your own self. Part of what psychology has taught us over the last hundred years or so is that all of this stuff within us, we project outward. We're making it all about other people. We're trying to, we, we focus too much on the outside without looking at the inside and confronting the evil within us. And so that's why we're doing this series. And when I say evil, I don't mean that we're you know, we're running around sacrificing to the devil. I'm, I'm talking about that darkness, the pain, the suffering, the woundedness. All of that darkness is that woundedness causes the sin that we perpetuate in ourselves and in, in the world. And so we have to start with ourselves. We have to start with our inner child. That's my prayer for you. The last thing that Jesus says is he points out the importance of the marital union and how divorce is such a bomb in a family. And remember that he is sandwiching all this teaching between two flesh and blood illustrations of children. So he is upholding the dignity and the importance of marriage, good marriage. And so, yes, it's an ideal. A perfect marriage is an ideal, but we can't stop striving for it. We have to continue to push forward by correcting one another, by putting good boundaries in place for ourselves and for them so that we can keep those families of origin intact for our children and our grandchildren. And if we can't do that and we can see that we can't, perhaps we just need to be celibate if we've never been married. And and the closing illustration there is where Jesus blesses the child and he says, let the children come to me and do not forbid them for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. We'll pick up on that next week in our last episode of our series, The Little Way, Healing the Inner Child. 
Thank you for listening to this Sacred Healing 1230 podcast. Find out more at BibleStudyEvangelista.com because love heals.